Godhead and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and all had all things in common, and sold their possessions and goods, and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. This morning, I want to begin with some uh, humorous church bulletin bloopers. Now, I've done this once before, and this is not a repeat. These are just some additional bloopers that I've come across in my research. And for the record, none of them appeared in our bulletin. Our bulletin is spotless. With that being said, you will be able to show us our next mistakes pretty soon, I'm sure. But I find these type of mistakes humorous because they give us a good laugh in a realm in which we uh, spend so much of our time in the life of the church. But sometimes you'll come across mistakes that just simply involve typos that turn into very humorous statements. For instance, there was one bulletin that said the church will host an evening of fine dining, super entertainment, and gracious hostility. You know you want to be a part of a congregation that has gracious hostility instead of ungracious hostility. Then there was one announcement uh, about a, a family hayride and bonfire that was going to take place at a congregation, and the instructions attached to that announcement were, bring your own hot dogs and guns. Now, there are some of you that would love that activity. There was an announcement in another bulletin uh, for a um, baby shower. And the announcement said, please join us as we show our support for Amy and Alan in preparing for the girth of their first child. <laughs> there was another congregation that had a particular uh, parking lot that, that needed you to park in a specific fashion. And so they announced this when parking on the north side of the church, please remember to park on an angel. For those of you who don't understand, the word should have been angle. And then this church was a cookbook being compiled by the ladies of the church. Please submit your favorite recipe, also a short antidote for it. <laughs> You've been to that potluck, haven't you? Another congregation uh, had nominated a new individual to become a deacon. And uh, they announced that so-and-so was nominated and has accepted the office of deacon. We could not get a better man. <laughs> wow, that was, that was a little slow there. And then this, uh, this bulletin said, To the moms who care ladies group, there will be no moms who care this week. And then finally, one bulletin announced that they had purchased a new loudspeaker system and had it installed in the church, and it was given by one of our members in honor of his wife. I wonder how well that went over. Now, I, I share these humorous bulletin bloopers uh, because they serve as a reminder to us that descriptions matter. The way we describe things do matter. 
And that's worth mentioning because as we continue our study of Acts today, we encounter a, a brief description of the first century church. A, a description that covers six verses from Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through Acts chapter 2 and verse 47. And it's Luke's way of describing what the church at its origins was like. It's a description of the church. It's kind of like if, if you are traveling and you want to find a church to, that you can worship with during your travels, you'll probably get on the internet and you'll search and, and you'll find a church. But nowadays, you probably have developed the, the tendency to read something about that congregation because even though it might have a name you're comfortable with, you're not 100% certain that what happens there is something you're going to be comfortable with. So you like to go to their About Us page. Have you ever done that? Researching a congregation, gone and read their About Us page. This is Luke's About Us page for the first century church. And in it, he's going to describe the activities of that church. He's going to provide some adjectives that tell us something about the character of that church. Now, I did a Sunday evening sermon series a few years ago in which we discussed the activities that are specifically identified in these verses. Activities such as studying God's Word and fellowship and the Lord's Supper and prayer and benevolence and worship and evangelism. And it's not my intent to try to rehash that today. In fact, my goal, though our theme this year is go and do, my goal is not to spend time talking today about the activities. Instead, I want to emphasize the details surrounding those activities. In particular, I want to focus on three key descriptions associated with those activities. And I want to challenge each and every one of us to ask ourselves today, do I fit the description? As we read the description of the first century church here in Acts chapter 2, ask yourself, do I fit that description? Do I individually, as a member of the Lord's body, fit the description that Luke gives here in Luke chapter 2, verse 42 through 47? And there are three key terms that stand out to me in this passage. And here's the first thing that stands out to me. That the first century church was described as possessing intensity. So if you look there in Acts chapter 2 and verse 42, the description of the church includes the phrase, they devoted themselves to. I've always been fascinated with that description. They devoted themselves to. Luke's objective when he gives this about us paragraph, it's not to inform us what the first century church was interested in. It's not to highlight the ministries that the first century church emphasized necessarily. What Luke's goal is, is to tell future generations of Christians what the Christians in the earliest days of the church prioritized. What took precedence what was most important, they were devoted to these things. That language of devotion is so very important. The Greek term that's translated by the phrase they devoted themselves to is a word that conveys a persistent attentiveness to something 
as well as an incessant care for that thing. In other words, being devoted to something meant it always had your undivided attention and it always had your deep affection. Being devoted to something meant it always had your undivided attention and it always had your deepest affection. Now, I want you to think for a moment, what are you devoted to? What has your undivided attention and what has your deepest affection right now? Because when you read Acts chapter 2, you find out that for the first century Christians, the thing that had their undivided attention and the thing that had their deepest affection was their relationship with the Lord. Can that be said about you? Do you fit that description? See, I noticed that in describing the church as devoted, what Acts chapter 2 and verse 42 does is it describes it in terms of its intensity. And when we say something is intense, we are saying that it's marked by great zeal and energy, determination, and concentration. In other words, that to which you are devoted, it consumes your life. It consumes your attention, it consumes your energy, it consumes your time, it even consumes your finances. When you are devoted to something, you give yourself entirely to it. It is intense in your life. Now, I've mentioned this example I'm about to use before, but there's a phrase in firefighting jargon that I've become familiar with not because I understand firefighting, but because I eat at Firehouse Subs. And it's the phrase, fully involved. At Firehouse Subs, that means you're getting everything on the sandwich. It's, it's getting all the fixings. But in firefighting jargon, in, in, in the lingo, lingo of firefighting, and the firefighters among us, among us can come and chastise me later if I get this wrong, but I did pull it from a firefighter glossary on a website which doesn't mean a thing. <laughs> but the term fully involved is a term of size up in regards to a fire. In other words, it indicates that the fire, the heat, the smoke, all the elements of the structure fire are so widespread in that structure that internal access must wait until fire streams are applied. So if I understand the terminology correctly, it means that a structure is fully involved when it is completely engulfed in flames to such a degree that it is inaccessible. Or to say it a little differently, a structure is fully involved when it is consumed by the fire to the degree that nothing else can gain entry. Consumed to the degree that nothing else can gain entry. And isn't that what discipleship's supposed to be like? So consumed with God that nothing else can gain entry. Think about the greatest command. When Jesus is asked, what's the most important command in all of Scripture? His response is, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, 
with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. That's consumption. To be so in love with God that nothing else can take priority. Nothing else can top it. Think about what Jesus said in Luke chapter 9 and verse 23 about discipleship. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. The idea behind what he's saying is for you to be so consumed with following him that there's nothing else to follow. It's consumption language with your life. It's intense language in regards to discipleship. And based on Jesus' own words regarding the requirements of discipleship, we can assert that anything less than complete surrender and total consumption of life does not qualify as real discipleship. And this is especially evident when you encounter the three would-be disciples of Luke chapter 9. You have these three guys who are given the opportunity, either of their own volition or by invitation, to become a follower. And not one of them does. If you look and survey Luke chapter 9, verse 57 through 62, you'll see that the the, the first would-be disciple declares that he would follow Jesus anywhere, but he reneges on that, on that, uh, that promise, on that offer when he learns that Jesus' ministry is an uncomfortable and unpredictable itinerant lifestyle. And so he chooses not to follow once he hears that. You can then see that the second would-be disciple is invited by Jesus to follow him. But this second would-be disciple, he, he appeals to other obligations, seemingly in an attempt to avoid becoming a disciple. And Jesus responds to him by indicating that it's more important to go and proclaim the kingdom of God than any other responsibility. The third would-be disciple offered to follow Jesus as long as one particular condition was met first. And Jesus responded to that third would-be disciple by indicating that God's kingdom is too important and its mission too urgent for other interests to delay it. The lesson to be gleaned from the would-be disciples of Luke chapter 9 is that discipleship necessitates being fully involved rather than somewhat committed. Scripture seems to indicate that Jesus has little or no patience for a half-hearted, bare-minimum relationship that leaves room for other allegiances. So you're either fully involved or you're just a would-be disciple. And the ultimate question this morning is, which are you? Are you fully involved, completely consumed with your love and affection for the Lord, that nothing else can gain entry in your life? Or are you one of those guys who's on the fence? 
one of those guys who has the opportunity, who has the invitation, who even has somewhat of a desire, but you're always finding a reason to hold on to something else. When we look at the church in Acts chapter 2, the description we're given there, it was a church consumed with Christ. It was a church that was fully involved. It is described in terms of its intensity, of its passion, its zeal, its priority. Do you fit that description as well? But not only is the first century church marked by intensity, described in terms of its intensity, it is also marked by intimacy. Look again, Acts chapter 2, go down to verse 44. We're told that all who believed were together and had all things in common. The first century church is described as being all together and having all things in common. That three-letter word, all, is small, but it's significant. Think about it. The fact that the church was all together indicates that it was uniquely united. At its beginning, the church wasn't segregated. There were no cliques. There was no quarreling. There were no superiority complexes, no divisive attitudes, no competing agendas, no separatist movements. Of course, that united status didn't last forever. Paul would eventually have to confront problems of disunity in his epistles. But at its origins, the church was uniquely united. How? You know, in one case of disunity that we've studied in, in previous sermons, there were a couple of women named Euodia and Syntyche. And they were divided over an unspecified issue in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 2, where we find out that Paul instructs them to be of the same mind in the Lord. The problem there between those two women had gotten so serious that Paul would even order the entire congregation in Philippi to help these women, according to Philippians chapter 4 and verse 3. But how are they going to help these women? If you go back to the second chapter of the book of Philippians, Paul writes to the entire congregation these instructions. Philippians chapter 2, between verses 2 and 4. He says, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. For Paul, unity required members to possess the same mind. Did you notice how frequently that terminology of same mind came up in those readings. You know what? You can find that terminology in another one of Paul's writings on the subject of unity 
in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 10. For Paul, unity was based on having the same mind. And it's interesting to me because in his description of the mindset the church must possess in order to be unified, he speaks in terms of deference. In that Philippians chapter 2 passage, when he calls on them to have the same mind, he also calls on them to do nothing from selfish ambition. To, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. And to look not only at your own interests, but also the interests of others. He places the emphasis on deference. And here's the important thing about deference. Deference is an indicator of intimacy. You have a greater tendency to defer to someone with whom you have a deep and meaningful and accountable relationship. It's much easier to defer to someone you love than someone you love less. It's much easier to defer to someone that you're close to, someone you know well, someone with whom you have a strong bond than it is someone you know very little. Deference is a key element of unity. And if you look at that first century church, particularly as it's described in Acts chapter 2, it's a church who has the same mind. And it's a church that's willing to look out for the interests of one another. In fact, that sets us up for understanding a second thing about the intimacy of the first century church. Not only are they united as defined by that phrase, they were all together, but then you have that phrase, they had, they had all things in common. That language indicates that it was cooperative. Not only was it uniquely unified, but it was cooperative. Throughout the book of Acts, the church is depicted as a people who met the needs of one another. Here in Acts chapter 2, verse 45, we're told that the members of the church were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. You can skip over to the fourth chapter of Acts, where we get another one of these little brief descriptions from Luke. And we learn in Acts chapter 4 and verse 32 that among the believers, no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And a couple of verses later, verses 34 and 35, Luke adds these words, There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed, distributed to each as any had need. Journey throughout the, the book of Acts. You'll see cooperation in chapter 6 when the apostles appoint men to oversee the distribution of food to widows. You can see cooperation in chapter 11 when the church in Antioch learns through a prophecy that there's going to be a famine. And so they begin collecting funds to send to those who will be affected by it. The point is that the first century church it understood that they had a responsibility to take care of one another, to assist 
one another, to meet one another's needs. At times, those needs were physical and financial and material, but at other times, you'll see that those needs were emotional and spiritual. But regardless of the form those needs took, you see a church who comes to one another's aid when needs arose. They were cooperative in that way. And here's the importance of such cooperation. Cooperation indicates that they were dependent on each other. And dependence is ultimately an indicator of intimacy because you have a greater tendency to depend on someone with whom you have a deep, meaningful, and accountable relationship. A person you can trust. A person who you have a close, intimate relationship with, that's the person you're going to depend on in times of need. See, when we look at this description of the church and we peel back the layers, understanding that they were all together and they had all things in common, what that ultimately communicates to us is that they had a unique sense of intimacy. Here's the key. In order for us to possess this kind of intimacy, we have to change our perspective about church. We have to stop seeing church as a place we go and start seeing church as a family in which we live. I like the way one preacher put it. He said, attenders tend to be consumers, but family members tend to be contributors. The point is that if you approach church with a consumer mentality, then you're not going to feel any real responsibility. You're not going to have any sense of obligation to it. You're not going to uh, feel a need for accountability from it. Consumers believe that everything is designed to serve them. Therefore, consumers tend to avoid intimacy and reciprocity. But if you approach church with a family mindset, that this is my family of which I'm a part, then you're more likely to feel a sense of responsibility, a, a sense of obligation, and a willingness to surrender to accountability. Family members grasp those concepts, even if it is just to a small degree. And that's why family members are more likely to pursue some degree of intimacy and reciprocity than strangers. I want you to think for a moment, which terminology does the inspired Word of God use when speaking about the church? Does it use the uh, tender, consumer terminology? Or does it use the family member contributor terminology? Consistently throughout the New Testament, the body of Christ is defined in terms of family. God is depicted as our Father, and you and I as members of the body of Christ are depicted as one another's brothers and sisters. That language is consistent throughout Scripture. But is it consistent in the way we participate, 
in the way we associate, in the way we contribute. I want you to think about 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 24 through 26. I want you to do more than think about it. I want you to see it with me. Turn there. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 is a beautiful chapter about membership. It uses the analogy of a body to depict the need for us to be united and joined and together. And in verse 24 of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul writes these words that God has so composed the body. How has he composed it? Well, look at verse 25. That there may be no division in the body. In other words, so that they'll be all together. And then if you keep reading in verse 25, but that the members may have the same care for one another. In other words, that idea of having all things in common, meeting each other's needs. And then in verse 26, a verse that I've frequented over the past few years in my preaching. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. I love that verse because that is an intimate verse. It's saying that we are so connected and so knowledgeable of each other's lives that we, that we celebrate with each other's successes and that we grieve with each other's losses. That I rejoice with you in the good times and I hurt with you in the bad times. That's intimacy. And that's what the first century church was marked by. That's what you and I should be marked by. Do you fit that description? There's one other description I want to call our attention to before we wrap this up. And that is the description of consistency. Because the first century church was marked by consistency or was described as possessing consistency. Look at verse 46 and 47 of Acts chapter 2. It says, And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. Luke describes the early church as a community whose involvement with one another and participation in the work of the kingdom was continuing daily to use the New King James Version. A similar description appears just a few chapters later in Acts chapter 5, verse 42. It's there that, that Luke says this, And daily in the temple and in every house they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. So on two different occasions in the first four chapters of Acts, the first century church is described as assembling, as gathering on a daily basis. And this identification of the church's daily interactions and daily gatherings reveals to us the early church's consistency regarding their spiritual duties. And it's worth pointing out that when you read both those texts in Acts 2 and Acts 4, that Luke will identify two different locations where they gathered. One location was the temple courts. So every day the first century church met at the temple. Interestingly, it seems to have adopted a particular section of that temple known as Solomon's Colonnade or Solomon's Portico or Solomon's Porch. They seem to have adopted that little corner of the temple and it kind of became the, the place, I think, that you knew where you could find those people called Christians. And based on a statement that will appear in chapter 3 and verse 1 of Acts, 
it's possible that they had a consistent time that they would go. That they might have regularly met together in that location, in that specific location, at a specific time that coincided with the Jewish times of prayer. It's possible that you could have consistently found these believers in that location known as Solomon's porch at those times of the Jewish prayer. But that's not the most important thing to notice here about their temple gatherings. The most important thing to notice is what they were doing when they assembled in the temple. Acts chapter 5 and verse 42, which we read a moment ago, says that they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. In other words, they went to the temple every day, and while there, they preached, they evangelized, they engaged in their duty of communicating the gospel of salvation to a lost world. The first century Christians demonstrated daily involvement in the evangelistic assignment that Christ gave them. But not only that, we learned that they, they went to each other's homes. They went to the temple every day, but then they also gathered and in each other's homes. Luke says in Acts chapter 2 and verse 46 that they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. In other words, they, they, they had this, these common meals together, this time of fellowship together. While they met in the temple for evangelistic purposes, I think they met in each other's homes for edifying purposes. I mean, you have to remember that these Christians, that, 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 that these believers in the first century, they faced much greater persecution than we do today. Not long after the church was instituted, the apostles were collectively arrested, imprisoned, and beaten for preaching and teaching in the name of Jesus, which you can read about in chapter 5. After that, in chapter 7, Stephen was executed, being accused by the religious leaders of committing blasphemy. And then immediately after Stephen's death, Saul initiated a great persecution that forced the Christians to relocate throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria in Acts chapter 8. And then you can get to Acts chapter 12 where Herod Agrippa executes James and imprisoned Peter, intending to execute, execute him as well. So the first Christians, they, they had to counter frequent attacks on their faith, I believe, with frequent encouragement from their brothers and sisters in Christ. And so when I look at these descriptions of the church meeting daily in the temple and the church meeting daily in each other's homes, there's this constant, consistent interaction with fellow Christians and this constant, consistent participation in kingdom work that I fear is foreign to our 21st century mind. See, we've grown accustomed to church life being associated with only a few hours on Sunday and Wednesday. Maybe an additional day of the week if you're involved in a particular ministry that meets with that kind of consistency. And what we need to gain from the first century Christians is the need for ever-increasing involvement, interaction, and participation in the church. 
We must recognize that, that our involvement in the activities and ministries of the church should not be limited to the four regularly scheduled worship assemblies of the local congregation. In fact, I'm of the opinion that, the, that first century Christians would be surprised, confused, and potentially even disappointed by the infrequency of fellowship and participation in the work of the church by many believers today. Simply because, in the first century, involvement and fellowship was part of their daily routine. Now, I'm not advocating that the church should schedule worship assemblies every day of the week, but what I am advocating is that we take note of the frequency with which the first century Christians were involved in church-related activities and consider what bearing their example has on us today. They daily met together in the, temples and in, each, in the temple and in each other's homes. Would you fit that description? And one thing we need to realize, one thing we, we, we need to uh, uh, never forget, is that discipleship in Scripture is identified as a daily responsibility. Jesus said in Luke chapter 9, verse 23, which I read earlier in this lesson, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. When Jesus was teaching his disciples how to pray in Luke chapter 11 and verse 3, he taught them to, among other things, say, give us each day our daily bread, as if to indicate that this prayer or this prayer mindset should be part of a daily routine. The author of Hebrews instructs us to encourage one another daily in Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 13. And you've heard before that that part of our responsibility is to die to Christ. Paul would say that it is not I who live, but Christ who live. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 31, he says that I die daily. Our relationship with God is a daily activity. It's a daily responsibility. Does your life fit that description? And it's worth mentioning that when you read Acts chapter 2 and verse 47, you find out that the Lord was adding to their number how frequently? Annually? Monthly? Weekly? Or daily? Do you think there was a correlation between the frequency of their spiritual involvement and their spiritual growth? See, when we look at the first century church, we see a description, a description of intensity, a description of intimacy, and a description of consistency. And since the first century church is the model for, for the church today, this description serves as a basis for comparison, causing us to ask ourselves, do we, do we look like the church we claim to follow? This morning, we spend some time with some descriptions. 
We could have looked at all the activities in which they engaged and asked ourselves, hey, do we mimic that? Have we restored the activities of the first century church? That's a great question to ask. But I think we know the answer to that question. This morning, I thought it might be more beneficial for us to ask, have we restored the attitude, the mindset, the heart of the first century church? Because that might be where we struggle the most. This morning, do you lack the intensity that's described in Acts chapter 2? Do you lack the intimacy with the church that's described in Acts chapter 2? Do you lack the consistency that's described of the church in Acts chapter 2? If you lack in any of those ways as a member of the body of Christ, then you are invited to make a change. You are invited to seek the assistance of your brothers and sisters in Christ. You are invited to come at this invitation. But it may be that you're not a member of the Lord's body. It may be that you have never devoted yourself to Him, that you have never made the decision to become a child of God by confessing your faith that Jesus is His Son, by repenting of your sins and by being immersed in water for the forgiveness of those sins. And if you've never made that decision, if you are still in your sins, then we invite you to come at this invitation. So while we stand and sing this song, won't you come today?